Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. My friends, the time is running out on us. That's Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados. I ask us how many more and how much more must happen. Motley was the opening speaker at COP27, the international climate negotiation that took place last year in Egypt. And I say so because there is no simplicity in it. We get it. I come from a small island state that has high ambition. But our ability to access electric cars or our ability to access batteries or photovoltaic panels are constrained by those countries that have the dominant presence and can produce for themselves, but the global south remains at the mercy of the global north on these issues. She knows this all too well and firsthand. Her country of Barbados is home to just under 300,000 people, and it regularly faces climate-related disasters. More than half of its residents live at high risk for these sorts of disasters, according to the Inter-American Development Bank. And the vast majority of the country's GDP comes from those risky areas, too. Like many other developing nations, Barbados faces a large debt burden, among the top five largest debt burdens in the world. You could see how Barbados would face an uphill battle in terms of getting the money it would need to decarbonize the economy. And financing is an increasingly central part of that conversation. This world looks still too much like it did when it was part of an imperialistic empire. The global north borrows between interest rates of between 1% to 4%. The global south of 14%. Much of the global south is on the front lines of the climate crisis. From flooding last year that wiped out 2 million homes in Pakistan to an ongoing drought in the Horn of Africa. The need is urgent, and there have been pledges to help. Back in 2009 at COP15, ministers touted a large infusion into climate investment. The United States is prepared to work with other countries toward a goal of jointly mobilizing $100 billion a year by 2020 to address the climate change needs of developing countries. But that was 14 years ago, and the commitments still have not been met. In 2020, those developed economies provided $83.3 billion, falling $16.7 billion short of the original target. Back at COP26 in Glasgow, another promise, a new fund dedicated to help developing countries move away from coal and toward greener energy sources. Back in episode one, we talked about something called the Just Transition Energy Partnership, or JETP. The US, UK, Germany, and France, and the EU pledged South Africa $8.5 billion. And while this huge sum of money will certainly help, it won't cover everything. A significant chunk of those funds comes in the form of loans, not grants, which may lead to further debt. This is why many developing countries are coming back to the global north and asking them to do better. Many are raising concerns that these debt schemes 
only underscore colonial and exploitative economic relationships. This is the bald reality. And we have come here to ask us to open our minds to different possibilities. I'm John Sutter. This week on Heat of the Moment, Season 3, A Just Transition, we're going to look into whether there's a way to finance the clean energy revolution. Who should pay? What does the global north owe to the global south? How do we upend long-standing inequities that are built into the global economy? Is any of this possible? During the most recent climate talks in Egypt, Foreign Policy and the Climate Investment Funds teamed up to host an event looking at some of these questions. It was moderated by Ravi Argawal, FB's editor-in-chief. He began the event by outlining the challenge at hand with Mafalda Duarte, the CEO of the Climate Investment Funds. Welcome, Mafalda. Let me just ask you this. Why is a just energy transition important? Why are we talking about it? We are in a place where uh, we have a lot of people that understand why we need an energy transition. We have, you know, we are investing around a level of 1.3 trillion uh, a year on clean energy, but we have to go to 4 trillion globally. And the gap is even more substantive in developing countries and it has been aggravated with the current uh, energy crisis and the the pandemic. It's another interesting data point, which is um, since 2015, and if we exclude uh, China, the levels of investment in clean energy in developing countries have stagnated. Wow. So talk us through this. Um, You know, this is COP27. Uh, We've all been here before. What are you hoping for out of this year's talks when it comes to the idea of a just transition? You know, I've seen positive uh, developments in terms of actually more and more, you see a lot more in in the policy and the political narrative, driven by, of course, a lot of activism and advocacy and a lot of, you know, stakeholders putting it out there that we will not achieve our climate goals without climate justice, without focusing on the social inclusion, on the social impacts, and so you, you are, you know, seeing a, a, an increasing recognition uh, of that in the discourse. And, you know, and hopefully that translates itself into investments as well. Uh, in our case, for example, we have launched new investment programs at last COP. We have launched uh, in June at Stockholm Plus 50. We will launch another one uh, here at, at this COP. And we are placing just transition at the core of what we will do. In fact, we have, uh, you know, elaborated on on investment criteria that the investments that we will be supporting, they will have to explain how are we really going to uh, be striving to make sure that there aren't groups that are going to be impacted quite significantly uh, by the transition. I mean, sometimes this is a little bit uh, abstract, but just to give a couple of examples, we, we looked at, because we will be supporting investments in, in South Africa and Indonesia and in India and in Philippines with our coal transition program, our new coal transition program. But in advance of that, we did some case studies uh, on a region in South Africa, which is where it's the coal prevalent region of South Africa. It's called Mpumalanga. And we also did uh, an analysis in a, in a state of uh, India, Jharkhand, which is also quite prevalent in terms of coal, to try to really understand 
not yet at the level of the community, which is where we have to go and understand what actually is happening at the level of these communities, but at least to try to first understand what are we talking about here? How many direct jobs? How many indirect jobs? How many uh, businesses? Uh, what is the proportion of the businesses that might stand to be impacted by the decommissioning and the, the phase-out of these coal-fired power plants? And when we start to do this analysis, we, we clearly understand that there are direct jobs, there are these the indirect jobs, there are the businesses, there are the revenues that these uh, enterprises uh, generate, and part of which goes actually to the local administrations. And mm -hmm. with these... Uh, revenues, the local administrations provide social services as well to the communities. So there's a whole ecosystem of potential impacts. You know, when we start talking about seizing out some economic activity and placing an emphasis on an alternative economic activity, uh, we'll have to find, you know, different alternative livelihoods and sources of jobs. So we will have to be supporting, you know, uh, incubators and, you know, we will have to be supporting mechanisms that actually support the generation of these new jobs, be it, you know, in tourism or in agriculture or other sectors. Uh, and that will also entail, you know, supporting skills development. Um, that's a key point that I'm trying to make is that if we don't invest also in phasing out from coal, we will not make the climate goals. Correct. Um, and, you know, they are the largest source, uh, and they are responsible for a lot of environmental and health impacts as well, which, by the way, we don't internalize. Uh, nobody's saying that, you know, uh, even with the package that uh, was announced last year in Glasgow for South Africa, the $8.5 everybody has recognized this is the beginning. This is a, a you know, a, a package of support to South Africa for the initial three to five years, because everybody recognizes that the level of investments that is necessary is large, is very considerable, um, but we need to start somewhere. And I think this start at this scale, and if we, you know, when we go in and we pilot these approaches of decommissioning these plants, of repurposing these plants, of making sure we are making the sound right investments in the communities that can then serve as a model that can be scaled up, I think this can be quite powerful. And this is exactly what we are trying to do in South Africa and, mm. and Indonesia and in the other countries as well. Well, Mafalda, I wish you all the best with that. This is Mafalda Duarte, the CEO of the Climate Investment Funds. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to bring on our next two guests. Um, John Morton is the U.S. Department of Treasury's first ever climate counselor. And I also have Dr. John Merton, he is a British diplomat who was the UK's climate envoy at COP26. Thank you, John and John, but John Morton from America with an O. Um, if I can begin with you, um, just talk us through America's perspective here from your role at Treasury. Why is a just energy transition important for you guys? Uh, it is relatively easy these days to build a renewable energy power generation facility. It is really hard to financially engineer the closure of a high-emitting coal asset or a high-emitting any other form of industrial asset. And yet our success and the speed with which we are able to crack that code will have perhaps the most fundamental bearing on whether we achieve 1.5, 2, or beyond in terms of 
degrees Celsius uh, temperature increase. So that's the reason why the U.S. is interested in this question, because at the end of the day, we're committed to the Paris Agreement, we're committed to the targets that have been laid out, and we're committed to working and partnering with countries around the world on their ambitious decarbonization pathways. And this question of just energy transitions, how to crack the code of financing, and frankly, providing the added incentives that governments need to do what is not just technologically difficult, not just environmentally difficult, not just politically difficult, but socially difficult, and often involves many, many, many different ministries across a government. How to crack that code with finance is the question that John and I and many others, and the SIFs, of course, have been working on for much of the last two or three years. That question is fundamental to our discussion of meeting Paris goals and of working collaboratively with countries uh, in that pursuit. And I would just say that I think the JETPs, the Just Energy Transition Partnership model that was launched last year at COP in Glasgow and focused on uh, South Africa and now has matured to similar work plans and processes with a set of countries including Indonesia, India, uh, Senegal, Vietnam, models this notion that in order to achieve truly sectoral-wide, economy-scale ambition will require a different type of financing approach. If the U.S. comes forward and says we're interested in supporting South Africa, or if the African Development Bank comes forward with a similar agenda, that's nice, that's good, but it's not sufficient, right? We need to pool our resources, we need to target them strategically, and we need to work together as a set of investor partner countries with our multilateral development banks, with our SIFs, to really make that the carrot, if you will, the financial carrot bigger than any single country or development bank could bring to the table uh, by themselves. And that's the kind of secret sauce of these jet peas, as they're called, is pairing ambition, climate ambition on one side, with a financial package on the other that goes well beyond what any single country or institution could bring could bring to bear. Right. Um, Dr. John Merton, if I may, um, given sort of the secret sauce we just heard of, how do you, I guess from the British perspective, how do you raise more money um, for this? And then B, how do you pick and decide who gets what? So what's the framework for such a kind of policy? What we're discovering in the South African experience is you never start with enough money. Uh, and we were able to mobilize $8.5 billion of government-led finance for the South African Just Energy Transition Partnership. Uh, and that's a, that's a really meaningful sum. Uh, and for all the reasons that John was explaining, it enables us to coordinate and, uh, and work across government in a way that we wouldn't be able to if we were mobilizing $500 million here or a billion there. But it's not going to be enough. Uh, and the investment plan that President Ramaphosa launched on uh, Friday in South Africa last week is essentially a clue to the, the next step. Uh, the investment plan describes how $95 billion will be required uh, over the next uh, decade in order to support South Africa's energy transition. Uh, and it sets out where the $8.5 billion that we've mobilized uh, will be able to be employed on that. And that process of, of setting forth an investment plan is, 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 is really helpful because we've already had other countries come who want to join on to this process because they can see that actually adding their weight to what we're trying to do will be helpful rather than to, to plow an individual furrow of their own. 
And also it gives the capacity to bring the private sector in. Mm. Uh, and I was on a panel this morning where someone pointed out to me that the cost of capital in South Africa is about three times that of the UK. Uh, and we need to mobilize now essentially another $85 billion of private capital. So what the JetP framework does is it gives a degree of assurance to investors such that they're able to advance capital for projects in South Africa at perhaps a lower rate uh, of, of interest than they would be able to do mm. without the framework of the JetP to support that investment. And what we've tried to describe the JetP um, money as, and the 8.5 we've, we've, we've pulled together as, we, we tried to describe it using four Cs, and I'm going to test myself now if I can remember them. <laughs> uh, the first is it has to be cost-effective. So it has to be cheaper right. for the South African government to, to take the money that we're offering than it would be for them to raise money on the international markets themselves. Otherwise, why would they do why? it? Yep. Uh, it has to be catalytic. So the money that we put in has to essentially crowd in a lot more money. We've mobilized eight and a half. The investment plan is 95 billion. Uh, so it has to go where only the, the government mobilized funds can go uh, to address some of the thorniest issues of the just transition. And the South African government are working to remove the barriers to uh, mobilizing bankable investments in the renewable energy sector. Uh, it has to be coherent. And what we mean by that is the countries and the partners, including SIF and others who are working together to support the Just Energy Transition Partnership, have to be working together, not competing with each other. And too often you see partners like the UK and the US sort of, if you like, competing in a, in a country. Uh, and this is, provides a really fra useful framework for us to cooperate. Uh, and then finally, it has to be country-led. And that's really important. This can't be something that's imposed on South Africa. We are, uh, through uh, the Just Energy Transition Partnership, supporting the delivery of South Africa's ambition. And the investment plan is being developed with South Africa in the leading role, setting out where it feels it's important to deploy our money. I have a last question for you, John. Um, uh, you know, part of the reason why we're here and we, we, we discuss things like justice and equity at a climate conference is because, I mean, historically, there have just been inequalities in opportunity, in development rates, uh, in access. And so when you think of something like JetP, how does one work through which country gets financing and which doesn't? Like, how do, you, how do we prevent inequities from creeping back into the system? So we're working to try and negotiate JetPs in, in a number of countries, which have primarily but not exclusively been selected for the impact uh, that they have now or will potentially have in the near future upon uh, emissions globally. We're working with India. Those discussions continue. Indonesia, they're at quite an advanced stage, and, and with Vietnam as well. And we're also working with Senegal. But not all countries will need or require a JetP uh, to make an energy transition. And what we're trying to do through the JetP framework is essentially create case studies of how it is done. Because the barriers to a transition in South Africa and in many other countries are primarily political rather than economic. Uh, and it's important to recognize that. Solar power is the cheapest form of electricity the world has ever known. And it has immense leapfrog capabilities in just the same way as uh, mobile phones have enabled countries to leapfrog a generation. And we've seen, where, you know, where I've worked in Kenya for many years. 25 years ago, you had to wait eight years for a telephone in Kenya because there was a landline and that was all you had and you had to wait for it to come to your house. 
if you'd have said in 25 years' time there'd be more phones than people in Kenya, people would have laughed. And yet it's all happened, and it's happened through the framework of the private sector because the, the economies of scale have sort of been worked up and, and, and understood. And what we're hoping through South Africa and elsewhere is that actually we can demonstrate how you resolve some of the political barriers to the transition, how you enable economies to switch to the cheaper, cleaner energy that can power their economy without destroying either the local environment and all the sort of health effects of particulate emissions or indeed impact upon uh, climate change more generally, how they can make that transition to a world where energy is, is cheap and plentiful. And I genuinely believe it can be done in the same way as we've moved through the telecommunications revolution from a position where if I wanted to phone my grandma in another country at Christmas, we, you know, it was a two-minute call. Now we make international calls for free on WhatsApp. Uh, and we're making that transition. If you look in Germany now with you know, the build-out of renewables, there are times in an energy supply grid where you have negative prices. Yeah. Uh, and what we're seeing uh, happening rapidly, and Kenya is another great example now with rooftop solar, these things are building out. So it's not an exclusive set. The idea is to set out templates uh, and create inspiration for essentially how do you solve this thorny problem of managing a transition that is economically inevitable, uh, because of the economics of, of renewable energy versus thermal energy that have only been accelerated by the Russia-Ukraine war, but manage it in a way that's equitable. Well, the whole world wishes uh, you are successful in that endeavor. Uh, John Martin, Dr. John Merton, thank you both very much for joining us today. Pleasure. I just want to thank you on behalf of Foreign Policy Magazine and also the Climate Investment Funds, our partner, in producing this event and also the podcast, Heat of the Moment, which I urge you to listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and enjoy your COP27. Thanks to Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief, Ravi Argawal, for leading that discussion. Some plans are in place, some money is flowing, and that means there's some reason for hope. But what do people on the receiving end of these grants and this debt think about all of this? What I'm seeing is a real involvement and a real capabilities uh, being deployed to help and, and move forward. I do understand that we are in a pace where it is still not enough. Much more has to be done. But you cannot say we are not on the right track. And you cannot say that the North is not moving on the, in the right direction. This is Rodrigo Ventura an advisor to the National Council for Climate Change in the Dominican Republic. He also participated at our event at COP27. In addition to his cautious optimism about investments from the global north, Ventura says there is a need for better deployment of technology as well. Policy does matter. And you get your whole government to move forward on a climate agenda and to think about moving away from coal. And you get the technologies for a small island like ours aren't there yet. Hmm. We have the technologies to provide energy and to have storage, but not at the cost that would allow us to continue developing our economy. We have just ramped up uh, in the last two years our solar capacities in the Dominican Republic. We started around 5%. We're at 14 Sometimes we get a little more. We are trying to reach 30 in this decade. We could go even further, but technical capacities in electricity won't allow you to use 
non-conventional renewables to power your whole system because stability is not there and at night it's not there. So storage can kick in and you can have batteries and you could do that. Technologically, it is possible. But if you were to use that, the cost of the electricity in Santo Domingo would be so high that right. you wouldn't be able to develop your economy in a competitive world. So this is where this is where small countries like us need help to get concessional funding to take us to where we cannot get on our own. As you can hear, there's a lot on the line. Talking about a transition must recognize that we have to end the fossil fuel era as quickly as possible. But we also have to look at how this happens. And not just at the math of reducing CO2 emissions to net zero by 2050. Next week on Heat of the Moment. You're moving in the direction that we need to move away from fossil fuels, but you're doing it at the expense of people who have absolutely not contributed to the problem. And frankly, you're violating their human rights on the way. That's next week on Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Hugh Seawright, Dan Efron, Laura Rosbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tatey, and Yurei Wu. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Until next week, I'm John Sutter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>